Hey, this is Tyler Harmon. Thanks for listening. A while back, we did a full-day Marketing for Founders seminar for early-stage founders and owner-operators. There's a lot of really great insights in here from years of growing startups that I think any founder might find valuable. But before we dive in, just a quick disclaimer. This is a series cut from live recordings that I've edited down to about four hours of content. These concepts are easy to grasp, but it's calorie dense and there's very little fillers in here. So take your time with it. So without any further ado, let's get to it and try to keep up. Okay, so let's have some fun now. This section's called Things I Say Every Day. It's true, I say them every day. So there's probably a lot of very common occurrences across a lot of different businesses from all sorts of different industries here. Said you're probably not going to agree with every single thing I say here, so just keep that in mind. And there's a whole bunch of these here that I say all the time, so I'm just going to bang them out one at a time. First one, build a better mousetrap in the world will beat a path to your door. This was said by Ralph Waldo Emerson in like the 1880s. Problem with this saying is it's just not true. And let's use an example of how this isn't true. I'm not just going to cherry pick one of these. Let's talk about mousetraps, actual mousetraps. So around 1900, the one that everybody knows, it was called the snap trap. That came out around 1900. Very successful. There's a whole lot of variations of that that are out right now. It was the one with the piece of wood and the, the spring and the little thing you put the cheese as the trigger and the, the thing comes over and hits them. That's the snap trap. So, 40 years later, the little champ came out. It was the better mousetrap that the world was supposed to beat a path to its door. This advanced design, it was a huge failure. Probably a couple of reasons. One, people were used to throwing out their old mousetrap because it had the mouse in there. Maybe they didn't want to throw it out. This thing was twice the cost. And also, it just looked fancier. So people were probably hesitant to throw it out compared to this very simple design. So, yes, more expensive. But honestly, if you ask me, even if it was the same exact price, the fact that it looked fancier, people were probably going to be hesitant to throw it out. How that saying should have gone is build a better mousetrap and most people still won't care at all. Plus, this new one, just Google it, Little Champ Snap Trap. This was not some monumental shift in improvement. It was an improvement, but not big enough. You're still killing a mouse in your house, so why change it that much? Maybe if it was big enough, of a change, like it was more humane or something like that, it would make a difference. But the takeaway here is, if you're gonna build a better mousetrap, make it worth everybody's time. Okay, next one. This is kind of a joke. If you had a restaurant where you could choose one advantage over the other restaurants in your city, what would it be? A lot of people would choose something like, oh, I want to be at the intersection of two major highways in town or two big major roads in town or we want to have the best chef or the best burger or good curb appeal or like a nice parking lot. What would you choose? Just think about it. What would you choose as your advantage over your other restaurants? You know what I would choose? 
a starving crowd. That's a pretty good advantage over the other ones. Because your alternative is, is if you do have something that no one's starving for, you better be Steve Jobs. He was this visionary who decided for us that we needed it in our lives. He positioned it and he showed it to us in a way that we did need it and we did have to camp out overnight. But that's not a starving crowd. He created that all himself. There are plenty of things that we are starving for now, and that's when you hear people say, I've been waiting for somebody to make this. Okay, another one. This is also kind of a joke. So, guy walks into a hardware store, and he needs a drill. What does he actually need? Holes. This was a stupid joke by a guy at Harvard. His name was Theodore Levitt. It's the same guy who coined the term globalization. And he's the first guy that talked about improving your products rather than just trying to market them. So somebody wrote this story about him in the Harvard Business Review, and it made it legendary. And what he was actually talking about was the job that the drill was hired to do, which was make holes. The job, you buy a drill to make holes in your house. So that same article in the Harvard Business Review, it talks about milkshakes. I told Joe we were going to talk about milkshakes. So turns out that they were studying people in McDonald's or something, and they were watching them buy milkshakes. And it started in the morning. People were buying these things, and they're going on their commute as breakfast, these milkshakes. They could have eaten a bagel, but they're driving, and they needed their hands free. So boom, straw right there. And then later in the afternoon, they saw the parents and they bring in their kids and they're getting their, their burger and their french fries. And they also got milkshakes. They hired these milkshakes for the job of finally being able to say yes to their kids. They, didn't, they, they wanted to feel like this loving parent because they spent all week saying no to their kid. So they wanted to finally say yes. And so they got them this milkshake. The interesting thing was, is that that moment of joy where the kids were cheering as they got the milkshakes, short-lived. Because the parents, they, they started to get impatient because the kids were taking forever to drink these milkshakes. They were so thick, it just took forever. This is called Nuance, and I love Nuance. One product, multiple jobs. If you knew all of the jobs that your product or your service was doing... How would you improve that? What features would you add or remove? It depends on the job. So if you ask someone to improve your product, you might get different answers from a commuter or from a parent. So the commuter, they might say, oh, you know, I wish this thing had more nutrients in it or something. The parent, they'd probably say, give me a thicker straw, man, or just make it a little bit thinner so this kid can just drink this thing so we can get the hell out of here. So the story of the drill in the holes. It's great for how people use products. There's no definitive answer. I've always said that real marketing is like putting a big, wet, mushy puzzle together. The puzzle pieces, they really don't fit together. But I also really like this story for the psychology and the persuasion side of things. A guy buys a drill because he needs holes. Yeah, sure, but not really. He doesn't need holes. What he needs is a shelf. 
So the holes in the drill are the means to an end. But let's go a little bit deeper here. What if it's the wife or the girlfriend who's usually not that handy and beyond this shelf that she's going to put together, she wants to show off her skills of building the shelf. So what we're doing now is we're just going to lay the hierarchy of needs right over the top of this job idea here. So let's think about this. You have this new hip restaurant downtown. It's impossible to get reservations. They have this really crazy menu with just nothing that you would recognize. So hierarchy of needs. They sell food, survival, food, sustenance. Sure. Okay. But the couple, they need a date night out together. Relationships. The couple, they want to be seen out at a cool place like this. Social status. So we're moving up the hierarchy here. And this cool restaurant, it's farm to table. It's organic. It's sustainable. It's good for the planet. Now you're in self-actualization. So go back and think now. Why did that parent buy their kids milkshakes? To say yes? Sure. But there were probably a whole bunch of other reasons as well. Next thing. There are two mindsets that you need for a startup. The first is called zero to one. This is a brand new startup. Things, they just don't work right now. They might never work. What you're trying to do in zero to one is trying to get the light bulb to just turn on. I mentioned the concept of defensible earlier about venture capital and B2B sales. Usually in zero to one, you're not doing defensible. You're doing indefensible thinking. They're not really shots in the dark, but there's, there's no data to point at to say that you should do one thing or another. In marketing, this is where breakthroughs happen. So here's this guy, his name's Peter Diamandis. He said, the day before something is a breakthrough, it's just a crazy idea. You go from thinking, will we make a sale today? To how many sales will we get? I love this part. This is, I call this part liftoff. When the sales chart finally doesn't drop down to zero for the first time on any given day anymore. It just stays up in the air. It's amazing. Like this is probably one of my top five favorite things. Maybe in all of my life. Just seeing that liftoff. Like we're not at zero sales for the day anymore. That's a fun part. But Differently from zero to one, there is the one to a hundred mindset. We've made it work. Now, how do we make it work better? Now you have actual data to look at. In marketing, you can look at conversion rates for the first time. Where before, there was no conversions or there were just a couple of them. What are you even going to measure? There's nothing there. The thing is, is when you finally start cracking into the 1 to 100 mindset, it's tempting to just lean on defensible thinking again. But that is a trap. Just because it works a little doesn't mean you're done. You're probably just getting started. It's still going to break a lot. And what this is, it's, it's a taste of success just to keep you going. When you get to 1, when you finally go from 0, when you get to 1, usually founders... This is when founders want to step on the gas with the advertising and scale up, 
especially if you're backed by venture capital and you need to show progress fast. You see growth, you get excited, and then you hit a wall. Why? If you ask me, it's because you're still in first gear. Second gear, you know what that means? More indefensible thinking. Maybe you're crossing a chasm. Maybe there's a different job that the masses need your product to do versus the early adopters. Now, look at this. We're getting into real recall here. All these ideas are starting to come together like I told you that they would. In computing, this is called layers of abstraction. Once you understand one idea, you can just build another one right on top of it. With computers, it used to be like these old school computers, you know, that there was no numbers on it. It was just light bulbs that would just turn on and off. Then those light bulbs, they turn into ones and zeros. Those were called bits. But then you put those ones and zeros together, you get bytes. And now you can form letters and numbers. Usually it was, you know, you, you would see eight ones and zeros together. That was what a byte was. So, fun fact, a kilobyte is eight times larger than a kilobit because the bit was just one and eight of those makes a byte to make an actual letter or a number. So usually we measure how big a file is in megabytes. But then you got Verizon and AT&T and these data companies, they got really sneaky and told you how many megabits you can download. What's bigger, eight megabytes a second or 64 megabits? That's what they did there. Anyways, bits, bytes, then you can form words with these letters. Once you have words, then you can make commands with the words. And once you have commands, then you can write code. Then you can have user interfaces. Then you can have graphical interfaces. Then you can have windows. And then you it's, everything starts from there. That's layers of abstraction. That's what we're doing here. Sorry, I digress. Okay, next thing that I say every day is what I call the messaging triad. There's three things here. There's the value proposition, the unique selling position, and the elevator pitch. So value proposition. I always think about the Ginsu knife from the 90s. It's so sharp it can cut through a shoe. The great thing here is I didn't know that I needed a knife that can cut through a shoe. But now I got to have it. This is classic home shopping network stuff. You didn't know you were looking for it. They just showed you the value of this so much and now you just have to have it. The next one is the unique selling position. This answers the question, what's so special about you? It's the way to avoid becoming a commodity, to unlevel the playing field. Like, remember the lemonade example? You go from competing on a price of $1 versus $2 to being the preferred choice because of how you soak the rinds and the lemon juice. This is where you get to say something like, I am the only blank. And you can leverage yourself off of something else that's familiar for context. You can buy your kid's shoes online anywhere, but our app takes a picture of your kid's foot and will tell you what the size is for each brand because they all fit differently. That's a very powerful sales tool, and it worked really well. In fact, it worked so well that you take that away, which this company did, and they quickly became a commodity. All right, third thing is the elevator pitch. Most people 
They say the elevator pitch is something that you rehearse in the ele- when you have 20 seconds in the elevator with the head honcho. Like when you're going on a job interview. Oh, let me tell you about me in 20 seconds. I think about it as the down and dirty explanation about your product or service to a customer that's not listening. So, you're at a barbecue. A guy's flipping burgers and he's telling you about the new app he downloaded. How are they going to describe it to their friends? A really good story to illustrate this is, you know, I come from real estate, so think about a friend referring their real estate agent to one of their other friends. So there's two friends, and they're both telling their friend who's about to buy a house. They're at a party, and one is their best friend who they trust implicitly, but their agent sucks. Then they have their crazy friend that they don't trust, but their crazy friend had the absolute best agent possible. So they both sit there in the kitchen, they're drinking a glass of wine, and they're talking about their agent and what happened. It doesn't matter how good the crazy friend said their agent was, it's still being filtered through that crazy friend and all this person's experiences with their crazy friend. And then when their best friend, who they trust, tells you about their experiences, their very limited understanding experiences what happened in real estate, they're probably going to trust their other friend more. What this means is when you're coming up with your elevator pitch, if you're doing something that will spread from one person to another that has to still be persuasive. You have to be very deliberate about the words that you use. Don't use jargon. Say things that people will actually use in conversation. Nobody is going to call your expensive dog food new and exciting. So be honest with yourself. The good news is, is that when it comes to the elevator pitch, in the right words and being deliberate, your competitors, they're busy having ChatGPT write their ad copy. So if you just take a few minutes to think about this, you're going to be way ahead of the game. So here's a key idea when you think about this messaging triad with the value proposition, the unique selling position, and the elevator pitch, is that there are probably several of each for your products. It all depends on the different jobs they're being hired, and who's hiring them, and where they are on the hierarchy of needs for that product. You could end up with dozens. All right, this is a saying in our family that we say all the time. It's all things being equal, people do business with people they like. All things not being so equal, people still do business with people they like. This could mean a lot of things. Here's a few things that it could mean. It could just mean be nice. In business, this could be your customer service. It worked for Tony Shea at Zappos to build amazing customer service. It could just be your persona or your voice, the way your ads come across. Like, makes me think of Ryan Reynolds and Mint Mobile. The other thing that this could mean is that be fun and interesting. Like, If you have to choose a cereal box design between Fiber One and Fruit Loops, let your competition be the people that are too afraid 
to be interesting. Let them be fiber one. And you go ahead and you put the maze in the word search on the back of the cereal box. Let them talk about our farmers. They think about three things with their wheat. Let them do that. You be fun. The third thing this could mean is that you're building relationships with the people who like your brand. What that means to me is that you're not going to know all your customers, but your customers, they know your brand. This is something that I call a unilateral relationship. They know your brand. They may actually know you personally, your founder, your interests. This happens all the time. People are surprised. Yeah, I know him and his dogs and his kid and his wife and a story and where he's from. They, they know these things about the founders because this becomes so ingrained in their own DNA about the, their, their brands that they like. These relationships, they're cultivated and they grow stronger over the years if you really work hard about this. This is as valuable as it gets. But it also means you don't have to compete on price anymore. All things being not so equal, people still do business with people they like. That's a big one. So another belief that we have in our family, this is something that we call the rule of thirds. It's, it's not the photography rule of thirds on how you frame a shot. This is, this is different. One third of the people will love you. One third of the people are going to hate you. And the other third, they're just going to look at you and go, huh? Not only are you not for everyone, you, you don't need 100% of the market. You'll never get it. You'll never get 100% of the market. So stop. You're not for everyone. Now, knowing that you're not for everyone and that you will never get them, you have permission to be you because you're not losing anybody here because you never had it. This means is that people are going to hate you and what you stand for just because you showed up. Do not cater to them. Do not. Think about them when you decide on your products, your service, your message, nothing. Don't think about these people that are going to hate you. If you were a fresh beef burger restaurant set out to make the perfect burger, don't just go out and make some stupid black bean burger because one-third still won't like it. The people that hate you, they still won't like it, and it's going to suck. And you're going to be taking away from the real deal that you were focused on. And you're going to be alienating the people that do love you for making the best burger. So all things being equal, people want brands that they can identify with, that they can become part of who they are. This is their values and their culture. If you are plain vanilla, fewer people might hate you but nobody's going to love you either. If it's appropriate, you could share your core values with these people, but just don't list a whole bunch of traits. Those aren't values. List the actions that do define the traits that you would write down. So keep this in mind, your values and your beliefs, when you think about the one-third that does like you and forget about the other two. This is something that Seth Godin he describes culture as people like us do things like this. Let your customers identify who they are 
and the things that they all do as it associates with your brand. Most founders, think about this, most founders build companies for themselves. Like, think back into the 2010s. These kids back then, they were building apps that would drive them home from the bars and meet girls without talking to them. What's your business? You should be able to talk directly to them about themselves, which is probably also you. Not to mention, with the venture capital people tightening their belts, they're refining their scope. Remember the niche that we talked about? Make sure they know which bucket that you fit in. And then another thing, one of my favorite copywriters said about this when it comes to the rule of thirds is the risk of insult is the price of clarity. So you're going to insult people either way. Make sure that you're not trying to cater to them when you're trying to be very clear about who you are and who you're talking to. All right. The next one is cost versus value. How do you determine what to sell something for? If you're a restaurant, it's about a 300% markup. Food cost, overhead, labor, it leaves a 10% margin. It's called the 30-30-30-10. That's how you cost things out. Maybe it's the going rate. Like if there's competition, that's what they charge. That's what you got to charge too. But maybe not. I live in LA and you go from one gas station to the other. They're, some are just like a dollar more expensive and people are still buying it. What do they know about that gas that I don't know? Why is one gas station charged $5 and the other one is 4 I don't get it. Sometimes you can do that for pricing, but sometimes it's not a good system for that. Sometimes it's worth way more than what it costs. Maybe it's something that's rare. Or if it's a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses, you know what these things cost? They're like 50 cents to make and they charge them for 100 Or the other side, maybe it's not even worth what it costs to make. Maybe it was over-engineered. Like, could you make toilet paper that was five times more expensive and charge five times the price? I don't know. Maybe it costs a lot to advertise and bring in those customers and that eats huge into your margins. Or maybe you got to sell these products person to person with real salespeople. If that's the case, then you have to raise your price even more. But if there's more value to something than it costs, it's a bargain. To be clear, it's not that it's cheaper than another product. If they get $25 worth of value or joy or something out of something they spent $15 on, then it's valuable. Think about this, the excitement you get of thinking about winning the lottery. That's worth way more than the dollar you paid for the lottery ticket, especially if you held on to that ticket for a long time before the numbers were drawn. You're sitting there and you think about all the things you're going to buy when your number comes in. What a rush for a dollar. Thanks for listening. Next episode, we're going to get into some dangerous landmines to steer clear of in your business and how to avoid the, man, I really wish you didn't spend your money on that conversation and a great story about Frank Sinatra and a meatball sub. In the meantime, if you have any questions, suggestions, or need help with your own marketing, check out tylerharmon.com or the Rad Dad Marketing website at raddadco.com.